I think looking for a board seat is frustrating. Most people who are thinking about doing it are used to putting together an action plan to get something they want and to get from A to Z. And this doesn't work quite like that. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. The process of becoming a director on a public company board requires significant preparation and a willingness to make a long-term commitment. As Julie Dom, one of our guests on today's podcast, points out, it's also often not an easy position for first-time board candidates to secure. Today, we'll hear from two board experts as they discuss what candidates should expect during the process, including how to prepare for the interviews and onboarding in today's virtual meeting environment. Celia Huber, a senior partner based in our Silicon Valley office and the leader of our board services work in North America, leads today's discussion. Now, over to Celia. Hi, I'm Celia Huber, and joined today to talk about board service by two experts in the field, Julie Dom and Sarah Bashar. Julie Dom is a partner and leader of the North American Board Practice of Spencer Stewart, a leading global executive search consultancy of which she was also a longstanding board member. She's a recognized expert on board governance and diversity topics and has led efforts resulting in over 2,300 women being placed on corporate boards. Although Julie has spent almost 30 years with Spencer Stewart, she's also a beloved alumnus of McKinsey, having started her career as a consultant with us. Sarah Bashar is a director at Invesco and senior counsel and former partner at Davis, Polk and Wardwell, a global legal and professional services firm. During her more than three decades as a corporate lawyer, Sarah has advised executives and boards of Fortune 500 companies on an array of legal issues. Sarah is also the chairman of the Nomination and Corporate Governance Committee and is on the Audit and Compensation Committees as a non-executive member of Invesco's Board of Directors. So Julie, I thought we'd start with you this morning. So if I'm someone who's interested in being on a board, what should I be thinking about when selecting boards that might be of interest to me? So I think a lot of people think that board service is the next step in a successful career. But I think it's very important to remember that it is a long-term commitment and it is a, a large time commitment. So it is not something that you go into easily and casually. You really go on a board, a corporate board for the long term. So it's very different than nonprofit board service. And so you should think about that this is something that you will do for at least the next 10 years, which tells you it's really important to think about why you want to do this and also what it is that's going to be meaningful to you. So what kind of board whether it's an industry, a size, a stage of growth, you know, those are important things to think about. It's important to think about where you can contribute. So if you are in the financial services industry, you know, it's it you might want to join a tech company board, but that might be hard. You know, so it's really important to think about what you know, what you've done, and where that would be valuable, particularly on your first board. Once you have board experience, you become a director and you can spread out and, and be a valuable contributor on many other kinds of boards. That's great, Julie. 
I thought we might bring Sarah into the conversation on what are the responsibilities? You've both been a board member and council, I'm sure, to people who've gone on boards. And so what are the responsibilities that I should be thinking about before undertaking board service? Well, thank you, Celia, and it's a pleasure to be here. Probably most of the participants have heard the word fiduciary and they understand that when they join a board as a director, they will be acting as a fiduciary which means they need to act in the best interests of the company and of the shareholders. And generally, people talk about the sort of three duties that directors have. It's a duty of care, duty of oversight, and a duty of loyalty. And those words do sound very legalese and very technical. But just very briefly, the duty of care means that when you become a director, you need to think like a business person and act in a prudent manner on a board and make sure that you're act diligently and read all the materials and go to board meetings because remember that will be a public filing about whether you've attended board meetings and that you read the minutes and you ask good questions and you attend and that will generally be enough to satisfy your diligence obligation. And the duty of oversight means you need to have a a risk and control process in place. And most of the companies will already do this, but what you need to do as a board director is to be focused on whether there are any yellow or red flags that you should be paying attention to and follow up. And then the final duty, the duty of loyalty. And that means sort of undivided loyalty to the company. You can't have conflicts that are not disclosed or are not dealt with. You need to be seen to be and to be independent. Thanks, Sarah, so much for that description. And maybe we could, uh, the three of us, talk about just moving through the process. So I've decided I'm ready for this in my career. I've got the commitment to be a fiduciary. And now what happens? I'm contacted, say, Julie, by someone like you who's calling with an opportunity. What happens next? So there's a couple of things that to, to think about. First of all, you should know whether you have permission to serve on a board. There are some companies that don't let anybody serve on a board. You probably know that. But you should probably also have a conversation with the person you work for to, to make sure that they think that it's the right time for you to do this. So that's kind of one internal hurdle you need to think about. The other thing you need to do is very te like technical, but you should look at the board meeting dates that they send to you. Because if you attend your own board meeting and they meet at the exact same time, you will never be able to join this board. So you need to kind of clear those two things. You have permission to serve on a board and you actually have availability to serve on that particular board given those dates. And then you should expect that you will be in a process. The board will probably interview three candidates. It's not exactly like an executive search where they tend to reach out and, and interview broadly. By the time someone has approached you, they have thought about the criteria they're looking for. They have considered many people quietly, and they have narrowed the list to a few people they would like to speak with. So you'll probably be one of three people that the nominating and governance committee will want to meet with. And the CEO uh, will also be part of that process in some way. Each board approaches it differently. You know, some have all candidates meet with the chair of the nominating committee and that person narrows the list down and the committee only interviews one or the whole committee interviews somebody. 
So the, the process itself varies greatly, uh, but uh, you should know that once you enter into this process, they are serious about you and you should be serious about them. You should go into that meeting extraordinarily well prepared. It really should be something that you've given a great deal of thought to and you know why you could be valuable to them and why they should want you. That's very helpful, Julie. So what do I do then to prepare for that board interview? And maybe you start and Sarah might have some other things to add as well. So you should read absolutely everything you can read about the company, everything that's on their website. You should know the bios of the directors I, you know, and the CEO. I would listen into analyst calls. I, I just think you just need to do as much homework as you can. I think you need to think about what are some of the things that you've done that would be really relevant to them? And particularly if they don't jump out, you know, if, if you had a, an experience that isn't really front and center on your resume, but that as you've thought about it, you think would be really important to them. I would make sure that you've thought about that and make sure that somehow it gets interjected in the interview. And I would be prepared with questions for them about the company, about the board uh, that show that you're thoughtful. So not just, you know, what's the strategy? A board member needs to be prepared, but a board member's job in many ways is to ask questions. And so the questions you come into that meeting with will be an example of how you think and how... Uh, insightful your questions are. So Sarah, what would you add in preparing? Well, I think that's a great list and good preparation is, is critical. I would only add, I think, perhaps broadening the diligence process to the industry itself so you can see where this particular company fits in the industry because all industries are undergoing huge amount of change, which you, of course, Celia know about, and how, how you can help that company as it approaches these strategic changes is very important. And, and directors will really want to listen to how you might think you, at least in knowing that you're thinking about these issues. And that, I think that will be very helpful as the process advances. And as you go from one interview to another in a director's process, you're, you're learning information that you, of course, can use for your next interview in terms of being educated about the industry and about the company. Is it common to meet the management team at any point in the board interview? Generally not. Um, you meet the CEO. If you're a financial expert and you are going to be joining the audit committee, sometimes they'll have you meet the CFO. And you may want to ask to meet the CFO, even if it isn't offered, but not till you get to the end of the process. So once they're ready to invite you to be on the board, you can ask to meet the CFO and the outside auditor or outside counsel if you wanted to. Uh, but generally, the, man the only person on the management team who's involved is the CEO. Sarah, you made the point, I think, very well about looking at the whole industry. So, for example, uh, I'm looking at a company that's in some sort of financial distress in their industry. Are there other things that you would think about in that first interview process that I should, as a candidate, be asking about? Warren Buffett always says it well, that you want to, as a good director, you want to be able to see far and see wide. So you want to look out long term into the future, look at the strategy and the goals and see widely 
the industry and the risks and the challenges. And so a company in financial distress means that you really have your all your antenna up about what are the issues that need to be addressed here. And of course, many companies had some struggles this past year because of the pandemic and the economic fallout. So I think that's a challenging time to join a company. On the other hand, that also makes it a very interesting time. And if you have a skill set that would be really helpful to a company, that that might be a really good fit or a match, as Julie says. I've been through the interviews and I'm really excited. And hopefully the board is really excited about me as a candidate. What happens next after that? Is there a formal offer? And how does that process all work? So at that point, the company will probably want to move things along pretty quickly. And they'll want to make sure that if they're going to give an offer to somebody to join their board, that that offer will be accepted. So let's hope that match is formally done. When that happens, a person generally would be welcomed onto the board. There might be a press release. There might be uh, some information given internally at the company. And there'll be then a discussion about sort of nuts and bolts issues that prospective directors probably need to know about. There is no contract of employment. You are a fiduciary. So you're acting in the best interest of the company. You're not employed by the company. So no contract of employment, but you will have to uh, potentially sign a few documents that talk about your conflicts and uh, disclose issues that you might have regarding any sort of related party transactions or any relationship with the company. Hopefully you've raised those earlier, those types of conflicts, and generally they can be dealt with, but it's very important that you identify them, you try to size them, and then you talk about them with the uh, general counsel's office or the corporate secretary's office. You would have to sign and file public filings about your equity ownership as part of your compensation as a director, and potentially sign some other types of internal documents like director codes of conduct and uh, other types of information. One question that I often hear is, is there a negotiation between the NomGov chair and the prospective board candidate about what committees they might be on or what things they do in their first year? Or is it pretty standard on most boards? So there might be a negotiation or a discussion about what types of committees that a prospective board member might be interested in. Uh, Most boards have three to five committees and they'll want a director to sign up for those. There might be discussion about some kind of mentorship from an existing director that might be willing to step in and help with onboarding and with orientation and with continuing mentoring. I think that's very important for new directors. Yeah, I think that um, that the the subject of onboarding is actually important right now because if you're going through a process, you're going through it remotely. You don't actually meet with anybody. You may have had a Zoom call with a couple of the nominating committee members, but that may be the extent of it. And so, how do you get to know people who before you would have been sitting around a table with? you would have had dinner with, you would have had lunch with. As a new director who's never been on a board, you've got a lot to take on in the beginning. You have to learn about this company and the industry, as Sarah said. 
You have to learn how to be a director. If you've never done that, it is not a job that it's not like any other job you've had. And, and then you are part of a group and the group is important and the interaction and culture of that group is important. So you need to get to know the people. So you've got a lot to take on in the beginning. And if you think about that, a board meets four times a year, six times a year, maybe eight, it could take you a very long time. So you need to have a plan about, and, and you work with the corporate secretary or the general counsel to talk about connections in the company. So this is when you meet the management team, not before, but this is when you meet them. Are there ways to get smart about the industry? And then how do you have a plan to meet the individual directors, even if it's on Zoom? You know, it's a, it's a hard entry <laughs> um, nowadays. I think just think harder than it used to be because of the fact that you don't have you have to learn so much and develop a personal relationship without being in person. Let's maybe turn to just some of the practical aspects. And Sarah, you mentioned that there is no employment contract. So do I, as a, a potential board member, need to closely review whatever I sign to uh, join the board? Do I, should I seek legal counsel? What, what is the norm here? Well, Celia, you should always review very carefully before you sign anything, right? You know, it's, it's not like a member of senior management negotiating an employment contract. All directors within a company or on a board are paid the same amount, which is public. It's in a proxy, so you can find out what that is. On that board, some directors who are chair of particular committees or chair of the board will be paid additional amounts because it does require additional work. But otherwise, it's a standard compensation and it generally follows an industry standard or the particular size of the company uh, will be reflected in the compensation. And the compensation is generally a, a breakdown between cash and equity grants. And the equity piece of it is, is probably growing in, in importance. To the extent that you want your tax advisors to look at this, I think that's really a good idea because you may end up having to do tax filings in the jurisdiction of the corporate headquarters of this particular company. So they're all issues that you just want to be aware of. But in terms of... Um, actual compensation, again, it's standard, it's, it's out there, it's public, and um, the same way that liability protection is pretty standard for all directors within that particular company. So everybody's treated the same. That's great, and I'm sure helps to improve collaboration across the board members. You mentioned liability. Can we talk just for a minute about DNO insurance? Because we get a lot of questions about that from potential new board members. And uh, maybe you can just describe how it works. Okay, so when I talked about the duties that a director has, it turns out that the law is actually very deferential to directors. There's actually very few cases where directors have personal liability. It's generally if there's fraud or the director's being dishonest or the director has been reckless, like really reckless about in ignoring, intentionally ignoring some red flags. So outside that, generally a director will not have personal liability, but a plaintiff's lawyer may put them on a claim that is made against the company. They may find themselves named in a lawsuit 
And of course, under those circumstances, any director is going to want the company to step in and run the defense and to pay all the legal expenses. So most companies, almost all companies in America, will have an indemnification policy for their directors, and they will cover their directors for a mistake or for negligence or for um, a breach of a duty of care. They won't cover them for dishonesty or fraud, um, but they will cover them in those other circumstances. And to help them, a, a company will get some sort of insurance, DNO insurance coverage at a certain level. And at the right time, a d- prospective director, once they've come on board, might ask about that level of coverage. You know, is it standard in the industry, you know, benchmark it against peer firms, just making sure it's sort of a reasonable coverage. We've been talking largely about publicly traded companies. Are there any differences if the company is privately held? Well, there there are significant differences in terms of um, because if you're a public company, you have public shareholders. So you're subject to a regulatory environment that is that is quite strict. And so there are strict rules about how insiders behave and an inside, a director is an insider. So a director, there are strict rules about what a director can reveal about the company. I mean, you know, what's said in the boardroom should stay in the boardroom. In addition, uh, there are strict limits on, on when a director of a public company can trade securities of that company. So a director can't buy or sell securities of that company without pre-clearance. Julie, do you think the search process is any different for a private company? A lot of folks get approached by PE firms with portfolio companies. So maybe with the aspiration to go public, but not yet there. Right. It's very hard to generalize about private companies um, because you have the PE-backed companies and even there, you can't generalize. Some of them require a great deal of time for, of, from their directors and some not at all. They're really their advisors and, and the actual PE folks spend all their time on it. Uh, but then you have uh, other private companies, you, you have family controlled companies or just, you know, com- uh, ESOPs. And so all of them are very different. And even within each category, it's very different. So I think it's important if you're interviewing with one of them to understand what your role will be, because it's not defined the same way as Sarah said in a in a public company, you know, for example, in a private company or family board, will people listen to you? You know, why are you there? The other thing that's interesting, which are advisory boards, where there is no fiduciary responsibility, and you may be an expert in something and they put together an easy one would be a pharma company would have a medical advisory board, you know, a tech company might have a tech advisory board, you get to go and talk about the things that are actually really interesting about where the business is heading or where medicine is heading or things like that. And so there, those exist and they they usually are only for a few years. Well, suppose I've gotten all of your great advice and I am about two years into my board term and I've either taken a job that now presents a conflict or I have some other, maybe my spouse has taken a job that now presents a conflict. Question for you about um, what to do at that point. Sarah, do you want to start? Uh, interesting circumstances. 
any conflict should be identified right away. So if you've taken another job, most director codes of conduct will ask that you as a director, when you, if you change your employment or take on other boards or even engage in some other outside activities that you sort of run it by the company. So there's, maybe it's not a pre-clearance process, but it's certainly an informational process. So, but in many cases, you can deal with conflicts. You disclose it, you identify it, you size it, and then you come up with a process to manage it in the boardrooms. Uh, if it really is a big, potential big business relationship, then you would figure out a way so that you're not, the independence of the vote and impacting that relationship is not affected. Mm. But it sounds like maybe you want to get off the board in these circumstances. Maybe there's too many conflicts to manage. So uh, under those circumstances, it, you would talk to the, the uh, general counsel's office, the corporate secretary. You'd like to hopefully give enough notice so that there's time to sort of phase in and transition because most boards try to think about their boards in terms of a composition of, of diverse skill sets and backgrounds and um, ages. And, you know, as people retire, they need to bring on new people. So if somebody's leaving early, that means they'll have to rethink how they think about the whole composition of the board. All right. So I think we've actually been through all the, the process from beginning to end and a lot of my questions. So let me just close by asking you each, uh, you have a good friend who's starting to think about board service. What's the advice that you would give them? Looking for a board seat is frustrating. Most people who are thinking about doing it are used to putting together an action plan to get something they want and to get from A to Z. And this doesn't work quite like that. You don't know what board's looking. You don't know what if a board is looking, what they're looking for. You don't know what kind of process they're using. It's all very quiet and behind the scenes. So it's difficult to access it. So I think it's important to remember that you will need an advocate in the boardroom to speak on your behalf. Now, it could be that it's a search firm who recommends you. It could be that it's another board member who knows you from a nonprofit board and has had great experience. And so once, you know, it recommends you, it could be a lawyer or an accountant that works with the board, but somebody has to recommend you. So you need to think about that and you need to uh, talk to people who you know are in boardrooms and let them know that this is something that's of interest to you so that they can be your advocate. And you need to be clear with them about what you think you would bring to a board. Good counsel. And Sarah, your advice? Well, I agree with everything with that Julie's just said, and it, it can take a very long time. It can take much longer than, than you're used to. Things weave and turn in different directions, and it's sometimes a little bit of a mystery. But I would stay with it because I think that so many of the boards in, in corporate America are evolving, expanding. They're dealing with very exciting issues, and it's a very challenging but very interesting time to join a board, and you really can make a big difference and just such a great opportunity. So I urge people to stick with the task. 
Julie and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expert insights on board service and for your encouraging words to those embarking on the journey of their first board appointments. Many thanks to Celia for leading today's discussion. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can find the transcript of today's podcast on the Inside the Strategy Room collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR for Inside the Strategy Room, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.